Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. All this month, the podcast will be focusing on horror and weird tales from and influenced by the pulps. In this episode, we have part two of The Thing of a Thousand Shapes by Otis Adelbert Klein. This story originally appeared in two parts in Weird Tales. It began in the March 1923 issue, the very first issue of the iconic pulp, and was concluded in the following issue. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. The Thing of a Thousand Shapes Chapter 3 The storm slowly abated and finally died down altogether, succeeded by a dead calm. An hour passed without incident to my inestimable relief. I believed that the phenomena had passed with the storm. The thought soothed me. I became drowsy and was soon asleep. Fitful dreams disturbed my slumber. It seemed that I was walking in a great primeval forest. The trees and vegetation about me were new and strange. Huge ferns, some of them fifty feet in height, grew all about in rank profusion. Underfoot was a soft carpet of moss. Giant fungi, colossal toadstools, and mushrooms of varying shades and forms were everywhere. In my hand I carried a huge knotted club, and my sole article of clothing seemed to be a tiger skin, girded about my waist and falling halfway to my knees. A queer-looking creature, half rhinoceros, half horse, ran across my pathway. Falling closely behind it in hot pursuit was a huge reptilian monster. In outline, something like a kangaroo, in size larger than the largest elephant. Its monstrous, serpent-like head towered more than 25 feet in the air as it suddenly stopped and stood erect on its hind feet and tail, apparently giving up the chase. Then it espied me. Quick as a flash, I turned and ran, dodging hither and thither, floundering in the soft moss, stumbling over tangled vines and occasionally overturning a mammoth toadstool. I could hear the horrible beast crashing through the fern brakes, only a short distance behind me. At last I came to a rocky hillside and saw an opening about two feet in diameter. Into this I plunged headlong, barely in time to escape the frightful jaws which closed behind me with a terrifying snap. I lay on the ground, panting for breath in the far corner of the cave and just out of reach of the ferocious monster. It appeared to be trying to widen the opening with its huge front feet. Someone had laid a hand on my arm and was gently trying to awaken me. The cave and the horrible reptile disappeared and I was again in my uncle's living room. I turned, expecting to see Mrs. Rhodes, but saw no one. There was, however, a hand on my arm. It ended at the wrist in a sort of indescribable, filmy mass. I was now fully awake, and somewhat startled, as may be imagined. The hand withdrew and seemed to float through the air to the other side of the room. I now observed in the room a sort of white vapor from which other hands were forming. Soon there were hands of all descriptions and sizes. They were constantly in motion, some of them flexing the fingers as if trying the newly formed muscles, others beckoning, and still others clasped in pairs as if in greeting. There were large, horny, masculine hands, daintily formed womanly hands, and active, chubby little hands like those of children. Some of them were perfectly modeled. Others, apparently in the process of formation, looked like floating bits, while still others had the appearance of flat, empty gloves. Two well-developed hands now emerged from the mass and moved a few feet toward me. They wazed as, as of attempting to attract my attention, and then I could see they were forming letters of the deaf and dumb alphabet. They spelled my name. B-I-L-L-Y. Then, S-A-V-E. 
E M E B I L L Y. I managed to ask, Who are you? The hand spelled I A M. Then they were withdrawn with a jerk into the group. I could now see a new transformation taking place. The hands were drawn together, dissolving to a white, irregular, fluted column, surmounted by a dark, hairy-looking mass. A bearded face seemed to be forming at the top of the column, which was now widening out considerably, taking on the semblance of a human form. In a moment, a white-robed figure stood there, the eyes turned upward and inward, as if in fear and supplication, the arms extended toward me. The apparition began slowly to advance in my direction. It seemed to glide along as if suspended in the air. There was no movement of walking, just a slow, floating motion. The phantom, when at the other end of the room, had seemed frightful enough, but to see it coming toward me was unnerving, terrifying. The nearer it approached, the more horrible it seemed, and the more firmly I appeared rooted to the spot. Soon, as it was towering above me, the eyes rolled downward and seemed to look through mine into my very brain. The arms were extended to encircle me when the instinct of self-preservation came to my rescue. I acted quickly and apparently without volition. Overturning my chair and rushing from the room, I ran out the front door and down the pathway. I did not dare look back, but rushed blindly forth into the night. Suddenly, there was a brilliant glare of light. Something struck me with considerable force, and I lost consciousness. When I regained my senses, I was lying in a bedroom, the room I had occupied in my uncle's house. A beautiful girl was bending over me, bathing my fevered forehead from time to time with cold water. Sunlight was streaming in at the window. Outside, a robin was singing his morning song, his farewell to the Northland, no doubt, as the stinging, snow-laden winds of winter must soon drive him southward. I attempted to sit up, but sank back with a groan as a sharp pain shot through my right side. My fair attendant laid a soft hand on my brow. "'You mustn't do that again,' she said. "'The telephone wires are down, so Father is driven to town for the doctor.' Memories of the night returned, the apparition, my rush down the pathway, the blinding light, the sudden shock, and then oblivion. Do you mind telling me, I asked, what it was that knocked me out and how you came so suddenly to my rescue? It was our car that knocked you out, and it was no more than right that I should do what I could to make you comfortable until the doctor arrives. Please tell me your name, won't you, and how it all happened? My name is Ruth Randall. My father is Albert Randall, dean of the local college. We had motored Indianapolis, intending to spend the weekend with friends when we were notified of your uncle's death. He and my father were bosom friends and together conducted many experiments in psychic research. Naturally, we hurried home at once in order to attend the funeral. We expected to make Peoria by midnight, but the storm came and the roads soon were almost impassable. It was only by putting on chains and running at low speed most of the time we were just able to make any progress. Just as we were passing this house, we rushed in front of the car. Father says it is fortunate that we were compelled to run at low speed, otherwise you would have been instantly killed. We brought you to the door and aroused the housekeeper who helped us get you to your room. Father tried to phone for a doctor, but it was no use as the lines were torn down by the storm, so he drove to town for one. I think that is he coming now. I hear a motor in the driveway. A few moments later, two men entered. Professor Randall, tall, thin, slightly stooped, and pale of face, and Dr. Rush, of medium height and rather portly. The doctor wore glasses with very thick lenses through which he seemed almost to glare at me. He lost no time in taking my pulse and temperature, pushing the pocket thermometer into my mouth with one hand and seizing my wrist with the other. He removed the thermometer from my mouth and holding it up to the light and squinting for a second said, Huh, and proceeded to paw me over in search of broken bones. When he started manhandling my right side, I winced considerably. He presently located a couple of fractured ribs. 
After a painful half hour during which the injured ribs were set, he left me with instructions to keep as still as possible and let nature do the rest. The professor lingered for a moment and asked him to have Dr. Rush examine my uncle's body for signs of decomposition, as it was now more than three days since his death. Miss Randall, who had left the room during the examination, came in just as her father was leaving and said nice, sweet, sympathetic things and fluffed up my pillow for me and smoothed back my hair. And if the doctor had taken my pulse at that moment, he would have sworn my ventricles were racing each other for the world's championship. After all, I thought, having one's rib broken is not such an unpleasant experience. Then her father entered and my thoughts returned into new channels. Dr. Rush has made a thorough examination, he said, and can find absolutely no sign of decomposition on your uncle's body. He frankly admits that he is puzzled by this condition and it is a case entirely outside his previous experience. He states that, from the condition of the corpse, he would have been led to believe that death took place only a few hours ago. If you can spare the time, I said, and if it is not asking too much, I would like to have you spend the day with me. I have much to tell you, and many strange things have happened on which I sorely need your advice and assistance. Joe Severe can take the doctor home. The professor kindly consented to stay, and his daughter went downstairs to locate Joe and his flivver. The things of which I am about to tell you, I began, may seem like the visions of an opium eater or the hallucinations of a deranged mind. In fact, they have even made me doubt my own sanity. However, I must tell someone, and as you are an old and valued friend of my uncle's, I feel that whether or not you accept my story, you will be a sympathetic listener and can offer some explanation, if indeed it be possible to explain such singular happenings. I then related in detail everything that had happened since my arrival at the farm, up to the moment when I rushed headlong in front of his automobile. He listened attentively, but whether he believed my narrative or not, I could not tell. When I had finished, he asked many questions about the various phenomena I had witnessed and seemed particularly interested when I told him about the disappearance of the bat. He asked me where the book, which had been used to dispatch the creature, might be found, and immediately went downstairs, bringing up a moment later. A dry, white smudge was still faintly discernible on the cover. This he examined carefully with a pocket microscope, then said, I will have to put the substance under a compound microscope, and also test it chemically in my laboratory. It may be the means of explaining all the phenomena you have witnessed. I will drive home this afternoon and make a thorough examination of the sample. I would be very glad indeed, I replied, to have even some slight explanation of these mysteries. You are undoubtedly aware that there are no vampires or similar bats indigenous to this part of the world. The only true vampire bat is found in South America, although there is a type of frugogorous bat that slightly resembles it, which inhabits the southeast coast of Asia and the Malayan archipelago. It's sometimes erroneously called a vampire or specter bat. You have described in detail a creature greatly resembling the true vampire bat, but it is probable that what you saw was no bat at all. What it really was... I hesitate to say until I've examined the substance on this book cover. Well, whatever it was, I'm positive it was no real vampire, as Glitch says, I replied. I don't like this vampire story that is being circulated by Glitch, said the professor. It may lead to trouble. It is most surprising to find such crude superstition prevailing in these modern times. At this juncture, there was a rap at my door. I called, come in, and Joe Severe entered. Well, Joe, did you get the doctor home without shaking any of his teeth loose? Yes, sir, I got him home all right, but, but that ain't what I came to talk to you about. There's a heap of trouble brewing around these parts, and I thought I'd better let you know. Somebody's sick in nearly every family in the neighborhood, and they're, they're saying Mr. Braddock is the cause of it. They're holding an indignation meeting up at the schoolhouse now. 
Ah, this is indeed serious, said the professor. Do you know what they propose to do about it? Can't say yes to that, but they're sure some riled up about it. Mrs. Rhodes came in with my luncheon and announced to the professor that Miss Ruth awaited him in the dining room below, whereupon he begged to be excused. Joe went out murmuring something about having to feed the horses, and I was left alone to enjoy a very tasty meal. Chapter 4 A half hour later, the housekeeper came in to remove the dishes, and Miss Randall brought me a huge bouquet of autumn daisies. Father has driven to town to analyze a sample of something or other that he has found, and in the meantime, I'll do my best to make the hours pass pleasantly for you. What do you want me to do? Shall I read to you? By all means, I replied. Read or talk or do anything you like. I assure you I'm not hard to amuse. I think I shall read. What do you prefer? Fiction, history, mythology, philosophy? Or perhaps you prefer poetry? I will leave the selection entirely to you. Read what interests you and I will be interested. Don't be too sure of that, she answered and went down to my uncle's library. She returned a few moments later with several volumes. From a book of Scott's poems, she chose Rokeby, and soon we were conveyed as by a magic carpet to medieval Yorkshire with its moated castles, dense forests, sparkling streams, jutting crags, and enchanted dells. She had finished the poem. We were chatting gaily when Mrs. Rhodes entered. A small boy brought this note for you, sir, she said, handing me a sealed envelope. I tore it open carelessly, then read, Mr. William Ansley, dear sir, Owing to the fact that at least one member of nearly every family's community has been smitten with a particular malady, in some instances fatal since the death of James Braddock, and in view of the undeniable evidence that the corpse of the aforesaid has become a vampire, proven by certain things which you, in company with two respected and voracious neighbors, witnessed, an indignation meeting was held today, attended by more than 100 residents, for the purpose of discussing ways and means of combating this terrible menace to the community. Tradition tells us that there are two effective ways for disposing of a vampire— one is by burning the corpse of the offender. The other is by burial with a stake driven through the heart. We decide on the latter is the more simple and easily carried out. You are therefore directed to convey the corpse to the pine grove, which is situated a half mile back from the road on your uncle's farm, where you will find a grave ready dug and six men who will see that the body is properly interred. You have until eight o'clock this evening to carry out these instructions. To refuse to do as directed will avail you nothing. If you do not bring the body, we will come and get it. If you offer resistance, you do so at your peril, as we are armed and we mean business. The Committee P.S. No use to try to telephone or send a messenger for help. Your wires are out of commission and the house is surrounded by armed sentinels. As the professor had predicted, this was indeed a most serious turn of events. I turned to Mrs. Rhodes. Where is the bearer of this letter? I asked. Did he wait for a reply? It was given to me by a small boy. He said that if you wished to reply to put your letter in the mailbox, it would be given to the right party. There was a closed automobile waiting for him in front of the house, and he ran back to his driven way at high speed. I must dress and go downstairs at once. You must do no such thing, replied Miss Randall. The doctor's orders that you must keep perfectly quiet until your ribs heal. I heard a swift footfall on the stairs, and a moment later the professor entered the room very much excited. Two farmers, he said, poke shotguns in my face and search me on the public highway. What? What's That's what just happened to me. What do you suppose they are after? I asked. They did not make themselves clear on that point, and they didn't take anything, so I'm at a loss to explain their conduct. They merely stopped me, felt through my pockets, and searched the car, then told me to drive on. Perhaps this will throw some light on their motive, I said, handing the letter. As he read it, a look of surprise came over his face. Ah, 
It is quite plain now. These were the armed guards mentioned in the postscript. It seems incredible that such superstition should prevail in this enlightened age. However, the evidence is quite too plain to be questioned. What is to be done? Frankly, I don't know, I replied. We are evidently so well watched it would be impossible for anyone to go for help. Of course, they cannot harm my deceased uncle by driving a stake through the corpse, but to permit these barbarians to carry out their purpose would be to desecrate the memory of the best friend I ever had. What are they going to do? asked Miss Randall in alarm. I handed her the letter. She read it hastily and ran downstairs to see if the telephone was working. What would you say if I were to tell you there's a strong possibility your uncle's body is not a corpse, or in other words, that he is not really dead? asked the professor. I would say that if there's the slightest possibility of that, they will make a corpse of me before they stage this vampire funeral, I replied, starting to dress. I'm with you in that, said he, extending his hand. And now, let us examine the evidence. By all means, I answered. According to the belief of most modern psychologists, he began, every human being is endowed with two minds. One is usually termed the objective or conscious mind. The other is subjective or subconscious mind. Some call it the subliminal consciousness. The former controls our waking hours. The latter is dominant when we are asleep. You are no doubt familiar with the functions and the powers of the objective minds. We will not discuss them. The powers of the subjective mind, which are not generally known or recognized, are what chiefly concern us in this instance. My belief that your uncle is not really dead started when I first heard your story. It was later substantiated by two significant facts. I will take out the various points in their logical order, and you may judge for yourself as to whether or not my hypothesis is fully justified. First, upon seeing him lying in the casket, you involuntarily exclaimed, He is not dead, only sleeping. This apparently absurd statement, unsubstantiated by objective evidence, was undoubtedly prompted by your subjective mind. One of the best-known powers of the subjective mind is that of telepathy, the communication of thoughts or ideas from mind to mind without the employment of physical means. This message was apparently impressed so strongly on your subjective mind that you spoke it aloud, automatically, almost without the subjective knowledge that you were talking. Assuming it was a telepathic message, it must necessarily have been projected by some other mind. May we therefore reasonably suppose that the message came from the subjective mind of your uncle. Then, the second message. Was it not plainly from someone who knew you intimately, someone in dire need? You will recall that, just before you fell asleep, you seemed to hear the words, Billy, save me, Billy. And now, as to the phenomena, I must confess that I was somewhat in doubt at first regarding these. Not that I question your veracity in the least, for no man rushes blindly in front of a moving automobile without sufficient cause. But the sights which you witnessed were so striking and unusual that I felt sure they must have been hallucinations. On second thought, however, I decided it would be quite out of the ordinary for you and two other men to have the same hallucinations. It was therefore apparent that you had witnessed genuine materialization phenomena. The key to the whole situation, however, lay in the seemingly insignificant smudge on the book cover. Two years ago, your uncle advanced a theory that materialization phenomena were produced by a substance which he termed psychoplasm. After listening to his argument, I was convinced that he was right. Since then, we have attended numerous materialization seances with the object of securing a sample that's elusive material for examination. It always disappears instantly when a bright light is flashed upon it, or when the medium is startled or alarmed and our efforts in this direction have always been fruitless. Needless to say, when you describe the deposit left on the book by the bat, I was intensely interested. Microscopic examination analysis showed that this substance is something quite different from anything I have ever encountered. 
While it is undoubtedly organic, it is nevertheless remarkably different in structure and composition from anything heretofore classified, either by biologists or chemists. In short, I am convinced it is that substance which has eluded us for so long, namely psychoplasm. No doubt you will wonder what bearing this has on the question under discussion, that is, whether or not your uncle still lives. As far as we are able to learn, psychoplasm is produced only by or through living persons. And in nearly every instance, it occurs only when the person acting as medium is in a state of catalepsy or suspended animation. As most of the manifestations took place in the room where your uncle's body lay, and he is the only one in the house likely to be in that state, I assume that your uncle's soul still inhabits his body. The final point, and by no means the least important, is that in spite of the time which has elapsed since his alleged death, in spite of the fact that it lay in a warm room without refrigeration or embalming fluid, your uncle's body shows absolutely no sign of decomposition. But how is it possible, I asked, for a person in a cataleptic state to simulate death so completely as to deceive the most competent physicians? How such a thing is possible, I cannot explain, any more than I can tell you how psychoplasm is generated. The wonderful powers of the subjective entity are truly amazing. We can only deal with the facts as we find them. Statistics show that no less than one case a week of suspended animation is discovered in the United States. There are no doubt hundreds of other cases which are never brought to light. As a usual thing nowadays, the doctor no sooner pronounces the patient dead than the undertaker is summoned. Needless to say, when the arteries have been drained and the embalming fluid injected, there is absolutely no chance of the patient coming to life. Together we walk downstairs and enter the room where Uncle Jim lay. We look carefully, minutely, for some sign of life, but none was apparent. It is useless, said the professor, to employ physical means at this time. However, I have an experiment to propose, which, if successful, may prove my theory. As I stated previously, you are no doubt subjectively a mental rapport with your uncle. Your subjective mind constantly communicates with his, but you lack the power to elevate the messages to your objective consciousness. My daughter has cultivated to some extent the power of automatic writing. You can, no doubt, establish rapport with her by touch, I will put the questions. Miss Randall was called, and upon our explaining to her we wished to conduct an experiment in automatic writing, she readily consented. Her father seated her at the library table with pencil and paper near her right hand. He then held a small hand mirror before her, slightly above the level of her eyes, on which she fixed her gaze. When she had looked steadily at the mirror for a short time, he made a few hypnotic passes with his hands, whereupon she closed her eyes and apparently fell into a light sleep. Then, placing the pencil in her right hand, he told me to be seated beside her and placed my right hand over her left. We sat thus for perhaps ten minutes, when she began to write very slowly at first, then gradually increasing in speed until the pencil fairly flew over the paper. When the bottom of the sheet had been reached, a new one was supplied, and this was half covered with writing before she stopped. The professor and I examined the resulting manuscript. Something about it seemed strangely familiar to me. I remember seeing those words in a book I had picked up in that same room. On making a comparison, we found that she had written word for word the introduction to my uncle's book, The Reality of Materialization Phenomena. We will now ask some questions, said the professor. He took a pencil and paper and made a record of his questions and answers to which were written by his daughter. I've copied them verbatim and present them below. Question. Who are you that writes? Answer. Ruth. Question. By whose direction do you write? Answer. Billy. Question. Who directs Billy to direct you to write as you do? Answer. Uncle Jim. Question. How are we to know that it is Uncle Jim? Answer. Uncle Jim will give proof. 
Question. If Uncle Jim will tell us something which he knows and we do not know, but which we can find out, he will furnish sufficient proof. What can Uncle Jim tell us? Answer. Remove third book from left top shelf of bookcase. Shake book and press maple leaf will fall out. The professor removed and shook it as directed and a pressed maple leaf fell to the floor. Question. What further proof can Uncle Jim give? Answer. Get key from small urn on mantel. Open desk in corner and take out small ledger. Turn to page 60 and find account of Peoria Grain Company. Account balance October 1st by check for $1,248.63. Again, the professor did as directed, and again, the written statement was corroborated. Question. The proof is ample and convincing. Will Uncle Jim tell me where he is at the present time? Answer. Here in the room. Question. What means shall we use to awaken him? Answer. Uncle Jim is recuperating, does not wish to be awakened. Question. But we want Uncle Jim to awaken sometime. What shall we do? Answer. Let Uncle Jim alone, and he will awaken naturally when the time comes. The professor propounded several more queries to which there were no answers, so he discontinued the sitting. Miss Randall was awakened by suggestion. We now have conclusive proof your uncle's alive and in a cataleptic state, said the professor. Is there no way to arouse him? I asked. The best thing to do is to let him waken himself, as he directed us to do in the telepathic message. He is, as he says, recuperating from his illness and should not be disturbed. You are perhaps unaware that catalepsy, although believed many people to be diseased, is really no disease at all. While it is known as a symptom of certain nervous disorders, it may accompany any form of sickness or may even be caused by a mental or physical shock of some sort. It can also be induced at hypnosis by suggestion. Do not think of... It is a form of sickness, but rather is a very deep sleep, which permits the patient much-needed rest for an overburdened body and mind. For it is a well-known fact that when catalepsy intervenes in any form of sickness, death is usually cheated. Would it be dangerous to move my uncle's health if we were to move him to his bedroom? I asked. It seems to me that the coffin is rather a gruesome thing for him to con convalesce in. Agreed, said the professor, and I can see no particular harm in moving him, provided he is handled very gently. Ruth, will you please have Mrs. Rose make the broom ready? Mr. Ansley and I will then carry his uncle upstairs. While Miss Randall was doing her father's bidding, we tried to contrive a way to outwit the superstitious farmers who would arrive in a few minutes if they made good their threat. My eye fell upon two large oak logs, which young Severe had brought for the fireplace, and I said, Why not weigh the casket with these logs and screw the lid down? No doubt they will carry it out without opening it, and when they are well on their way, we can place my uncle in your car and be out of reach before they discover the substitution. A capital idea! said the professor. We will wrap the logs well so they do not rattle. As the casket is an especially heavy one, they will be none the wiser until it is opened at the grave. I ran upstairs and tore two heavy comforters from my bed, and with these we soon had the logs well padded. Miss Randall called the room was ready. The professor and I carefully lifted my uncle from the casket and were about to take him from the room when a gruff voice commanded, Stop! A dozen masked men, armed indiscriminately with shotguns, rifles, and revolvers, were standing in the hall. We could hear the stamping of many more on the porch. I recognized the voice and figure of the leader as those of Glitch. Back in their coffin, he said, pointing a double-barreled shotgun at me. Put them back or I blow your Tom head off. Then several other men came in and menaced us with their weapons. The Thing of a Thousand Shapes, Chapter 5 I dropped my uncle's feet and rushed furiously at Glitch, but was quickly seized and overpowered by two stalwart farmers. The professor, however, was more calm. He laid my uncle gently on the floor and faced the men. Gentlemen, may I ask the reason for this sudden and unwarranted intrusion in a peaceful home? If you are going to bury that vampire, me to stake through his heart. Dot vat, replied Glitch. What would you do if I were to tell you this man is not dead, but alive? 
Alive or dead, he's going to be buried tonight, said a burly ruffian stepping up to my uncle. One of you guys help me get this in the coffin. A tall, lean farmer stepped up and leaned his gun against the casket. Then the two of them roughly lifted my uncle into it and screwed down the lid. In the meantime, another had discovered the wrapped logs, to which he called the attention of his companions. Well, I'll be blowed. Thought he was pretty slick, didn't you? Thought you could fool us with a couple logs. Just for that, we'll take you along to the party so you don't try no more fancy capers. Gentlemen, said the professor, do you realize you'll be committing a murder if you bury this man's body? Murder hell, exclaimed one. He killed my boy. He sucked my daughter's blood, cried another. And my brother is lying in his deathbed on account of him, shouted a third. Come on, let's go, said the burly ruffian. Some of you boys grab hold of them handles and we'll change shifts going out. Yeah, we will proceed. Vorwitz, said Glitch. If you will permit me, I will go and reassure my daughter before accompanying you, said the professor. She is very nervous and may be prostrated with fear if I do not calm her. Go ahead and be quick about it. Don't try no funny stunts, though, or we'll use the stake on you, too. The professor hurried upstairs, and on his return a moment later, the funeral cortege proceeded. It was pitch dark outside, and therefore necessary for some of the men to carry lanterns. One of these led the way. Immediately after him walked six men bearing the casket behind which the professor and I walked with an armed guard on either side of us. Following were the remainder of the men, some twenty-five all told. There was no talking except at intervals and the pallbearers relieved by others. This occurred a number of times as the burden was heavy and the way none too smooth. I walked as one in a trance. It seemed that my feet moved automatically as directed by a power outside of myself. I mentally reviewed the many kindnesses of my uncle. I thought of his generous self-sacrifice, that I might be educated to cope with the world. And now the time had come when it should be of service to him, when his very life was to be taken. I was failing him, failing him miserably. I cuddled my numb brain for some way of outfitting the superstitious farmers. Once I thought of wrestling the gun from my guard and fighting the mob alone, but I knew this would be useless. I would merely delay not defeat the grisly plans of these men and would be almost sure to lose my own life in the attempt. I was faint and weak, and my broken ribs pained incessantly. All too soon we arrived at the pine grove and moved toward a point from which the rays of a lantern glimmered faintly through the trees. A few moments more, and we were beside a shallow grave which the six grim sextons, masked like their companions, waited. The casket was placed in the grave and the lid removed. Then a long, stout stake, sharply pointed with iron, was brought forward and two men with heavy sledges moved, one to each side of the grave. Here a discussion arose as to whether it would be better to drive the stake through the body and then replace the lid, or to put the lid on first and then drive the stake through the entire coffin. The latter plan was finally decided upon and the lid replaced when we were all startled by a terrible screaming coming from a thicket. Perhaps a hundred yards distant, it was the voice of a woman in mortal terror. Help! Save me! Save me! Oh my God, will nobody save me? In a moment, all was confusion. Stakes and walls were dropped and everyone rushed toward the thicket. The cries redoubled as we approached. Presently, we saw a woman running through the underbrush and after a chase of several minutes overtook her. My heart leaped to my throat as I recognized Ruth Randall. She was crouching low, as if in deadly fear of something, which she seemed to be trying to push away from her, something invisible, imperceptible to us. Her beautiful hair hung below her waist, and her clothing was bedraggled and torn. I was the first to reach her side. Ruth, what is the matter? Oh, that huge bat! That terrible bat with the fiery eyes! Drive him away from me! Don't let him get me! Please! Please! I tried to soothe her in my arms. She looked up, her eyes distended with terror. 
There he is right behind you. Don't let him get me. Oh, please don't let him get me. I look back, but can see nothing resembling a bat. The armed men stood around us in a circle. There is no bat behind me, I said. You're overwrought. Don't be frightened. But there is a bat. I can see him. He's flying around us in a circle now. Don't you see him flying there? You men have guns. Shoot him. Drive him away. Glitch spoke. It's the vampire again. We'll put a stop to this business right now. Come on, men. We started back to the grove. I was mystified. Perhaps there was such a thing as a vampire after all. But no, that could not be. She was only the victim of overwrought nerves. Once more, we stood beside the grave. Two men were screwing down the coffin lid. The three at the stake and sledges stood ready. I saw that Miss Randall was trembling with the cold, for she had come out without a wrap, and removing my coat, I placed it around her. The professor stood at the foot of the grave, looking down calmly at the men. He appeared almost unconcerned. The stake was placed on the spot, calculated to be directly above the left breast of my uncle, and the man nearest me raised his sledge to strike. I leaped toward him. Don't strike! For God's sake, don't strike! I cried, seizing his arm. Someone hit me in the back of the head, and strong arms dragged me back. My senses reeled as I saw first one heavy sledge descend, then another. The stake crashed through the coffin and deep into the ground beneath, driven by the relentless blows. Suddenly, apparently from the bottom of the grave, came a muffled, wailing cry, increasing to a horrible, blood-curdling shriek. The mob stood for a moment as if paralyzed, then, to a man, fled precipitately, stopping for neither weapons nor tools. I found temporary relief in unconsciousness. My senses returned to me gradually. I was walking, or rather reeling as one intoxicated, between Miss Randall and her father, who were helping me toward the house. The professor was carrying a lantern, which one of the men had dropped, and fantastic, swaying, bobbing shadows stretched wherever his rays penetrated. After what seemed an age of painful travel, we reached the house, and Miss Randall helped me into the front room, the professor following. Sam and Joe Severe were there, and someone reclined in the large Morris chair facing the fire. Mrs. Rhodes came bustling in with a steaming tea wagon. I moved toward the fire, for I was chilled through. As I did so, I glanced toward the occupant of the Morris chair, then gave a startled cry. The man in the chair was Uncle Jim. Hello, Billy, he said. How are you, my boy? For a moment, I was speechless. Uh, uh, Uncle Jim, is it really you, or, or am I dreaming again? Ruth squeezed my arm reassuringly. Don't be afraid, it's really your uncle. I knelt by the chair and felt Uncle Jim's arms about my shoulders. Yes, it is really I, Billy. A bit weak and shaken, perhaps, but I'll soon be as sound as a new dollar. But how, but why, how, when, how, how did you get out of that horrible grave? First, I'll ask Miss Ruth if she will be so kind as to preside over the tea wagon. Then I believe my friend Randall can recount the events of the evening much more clearly and satisfactorily than I. Being perhaps more familiar with the evening's deep-laid plot than some of those present, I accept the nomination, replied the professor, smiling. Although in doing so, I do not want to detract one iota from the honor due to my fellow plotters for their most efficient assistance, without which my plan would have been a complete failure. Tea was served, cigars were lighted, and the professor began. In the first place, I am sure you will all be interested in knowing the cause of the epidemic on account of which some of our neighbors have reverted to the superstition of the Dark Ages. It's explained by an article in the Peoria Times, which I brought with me this afternoon, but did not have time to read until a moment ago, which states that the countryside is being estranged by a new and strange malady known as sleeping sickness, and that physicians have not, as yet, found any efficient means of combating the disease. Now, for this evening's little drama, you will no doubt recall, Mr. Ansley, that before we joined the funeral procession, I requested a moment's conversation with my daughter.
The events which followed were a result of that conversation. In order that the plan might be carried out, it was necessary for her to first gain the help of Joe and Sam here, and then make a quick detour around the procession. I know that there are few men who will not rush to the rescue of a woman in distress, and I asked her to call for help in order to divert them off from the grave. She thought of the bad idea herself, and I must say it worked most excellently. While everyone was gone, Joe and Sam, who had stationed themselves nearby, came and helped me remove your uncle from the casket. As we did so, I noticed signs of returning consciousness, brought about in some measure, no doubt, by the rude jolting of the casket. Then the boys carried him to the house while I replaced the lid. You're all familiar with what happened. But an unearthly shriek from the grave, I said. It sounded like the cry of a dying man. Ventriloquism, said the professor. Nothing more. A simple little trick I learned in my high school days. It was I who shrieked. Uncle Jim and I convalesced together. When my ribs were knitted and his strength was restored, it was decided that we should go to Florida for the winter and I should have charge of the farm. He said that my education and training should make me a far more capable manager than he, and that the position should be mine as long as I desired it. He delayed his trip, however, until a certain girl, who had made me a certain promise, exchanged the name of Randall for that of Ansley. Then he left us to our happiness. The End And that is all for this episode of the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. Thanks for listening and join us again next week for more Halloween and October style adventures. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. Copyright 2019. Thanks for listening.